Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this wonderful, beautiful Thursday morning. We have the absolute pleasure of speaking again with Dr. Elizabeth Ryder. She was on a couple weeks ago uh, where she talked about her being a auto mechanic, a small business owner, university teacher, anthropologist. And she also worked for about three decades for organized labor. Good morning, Dr. Ryder. Good morning. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you. How are you doing this morning? Very good. Always very good. <laughs> okay. What we didn't get to talk about last time, we didn't spend very much time talking about worker cooperatives, and that's where I like to spend our time today. So how did you get involved in the worker cooperative movement? Well, for most of my adult life, I have been involved in cooperatives. But in about the 1990s, a friend of mine pointed out the difference between a worker cooperative and all other types of cooperatives, which is that the worker cooperative really solves the, the exploitative relationship between the, the employer and the employee. So there is no um, difference between an employer and employee in um, a worker cooperative. The workers own the business, and there's no boss, you know, that. Um, taking off um, a, a portion of the, of the value that's created by the business. And, you know, as that, it's a uh, worker cooperative is actually the fulfillment of the mission of the, of the entire labor movement in the sense that, that the, the way to uh, fulfill the mission of the, la- of the labor movement is to return the means of production to the worker. So what the means of production means is the equipment needed and uh, the the investment needed to create the business. So if we have a textile industry, it's the, the textile looms, you know, and the, the building that uh, the, the factory is in. Those are owned by the boss usually, and then people are just employed at a very minimal level, um, paid very minimal level, even though they create greater value than they are paid for. Uh, and that greater value goes to the person who owns that means of production. Well, in the worker cooperative, that there is no boss that owns the, the equipment, and there is no boss-employee uh, relationship. Everybody owns an equal share, and the workers themselves own and control democratically the entire operation. So it's fulfillment of the of the goals of the labor movement. Wow, that's that's well. Thank you. Um... I'm glad I asked you that because that was well said, and I got it. It's the fulfillment of the mission of the labor union is the worker co-ops. So you have this exportative relationship. You have the the boss and the worker. Uh, it's almost the slave owner and the slave, okay, right. where the slave owner tells the slave what to do. The slave does the work. Um, get paid very, very little to nothing. Uh, they may say they, they gave them housing and gave them food, but it was terrible housing and too often the scraps from the table. And so they paid them as little as possible, this exploitative relationship that you talk about. Uh, and then the boss took all of the profit. They owned the means of production. They owned the plant. They owned the plantation. They they own the retail store, whatever it is, the guy with the money, the capitalist, owned it. And then they hired labor to do the work. The labor produced the profit, produced the, the product, but they didn't get to share in the profit. Exactly. Okay. Right. All right. And, and somebody told you in the 1990s that worker co-ops fulfill the mission of the labor union. I like that. Right. 
<laughs> I like and so, that. you know, very often people ask me, are, you know, uh, should worker cooperatives be in unions? Well, that's not the question. The question is, is to, uh, it's not even a question. It's an assertion. Worker cooperatives are part of the labor movement. They are the fulfillment of the labor movement. And so, you know, uh, I often, uh, quoting Kennedy, say, it's not what your union can do for you. It's what you can do for your union. Really realize that you are part of the labor movement and join a union to support other workers to make the same transition uh, to um, a non-exploitative workplace. So, um, as you know, I, I told you last time, I, I went to Stanford University and got my MBA. They were never taught anything about cooperatives there in my two years there. They still don't teach it to my knowledge in the MBA program, anything about co-ops. But the person that started Stanford, Leland Stanford, in, 19, in 1886, he was a senator, and he put a bill in to foster the creation of worker co-ops, which I found fascinating when I found this out. Uh, and he said that the, in his mind, uh, capital was the product of labor. Yes. And this, this seeming, he's called it seeming antagonism between capital and labor is the, re, is the result of deceptive appearance, that somebody is deceiving labor and causing this antagonism. But he's persuaded that through cooperation, labor could become its own employer. Okay, which is another way of saying the same thing. I was, I was just fascinated to see he was, uh, Leland Stanford was a um, railroad baron, which was the capitalist in his time, um, like the um, the high tech folk today are the capitalists of Bill Gates and are the capitalists of our time. So uh, for him to get the labor that through cooperation, labor could become its own employer. And through ca- cooperation, worker cooperatives, labor can own the means of production. I like that. Thank you for that. I'm going to use that if you don't mind. Own the means well, of production. Mind. Please do spread it far and wide. <laughs> okay. So what kind of work have you been doing in the worker cooperative movement? Well, so in uh, 2006, the, um, approximately 2006, I don't know the actual date, but the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives was forming. I was working in Oakland, uh, and they, they're based in Oakland at the time, and I found out that that was happening. And I contacted them and said, you know, how can I help? And immediately uh, someone um, from, I guess it was from Rainbow Grocery, which is a wonderful worker cooperative grocery market, one of the board members said, well, you know, you work for labor. You should help us figure out how to create bridges between the labor movement and um, uh, work the worker cooperative community. And so I, that's, I realized that's exactly what I should be doing since I do work for labor, did work for labor at the time. Um, in the 90s, I was working for SEIU, and then starting in 2000, I was working for AFSCME, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Um, and so I created a... Um, a, a sort of an email list and a, a working group within my coworkers and other my other acquaintances in the um, in the labor movement, and I called it Works Worker Ownership Resources and Cooperative Services. Um, I used that acronym, and we were doing an email list and discussions and whatnot. And um, a somebody got a hold of one of my emails and published um, a, a quote from me. I had not I wasn't aware that he was using a quote from me. His name was Dan Bell. I think he's long since passed away, actually, but it was in a magazine called Dollars and Cents in 2006. Uh, and I remember that one of my uh, my my supervisors in um, AFSCME contacted me and said, this is not AFSCME policy. Why are you being quoted in Dollars and Cents magazine? And because this person uh, had, you know, used my, um, my work um, uh, designation at that time as a regional field administrator, the Western region of AFSCME International, and uh, and basically they you know, read the ride back to me like I was I was attempting to represent AFSCME and I wasn't I was mm-hmm. I had not I had no idea this fellow was going to be quoting me, uh, but you know that sort of catapulted me forward. I needed to you know work on you know exactly solidifying uh, what I was doing, and um, so uh, I published a small article in Geo.coop um, explaining my perspective on. Um, uh, worker cooperatives and uh, the labor movement, um, and um, 
And then in 2007, uh, also the Eastern uh, Conference of Workplace Democracy had uh, uh, work sessions, you know, on the same topic. They, you know, great minds think alike. Um, the and they contacted me because this thing had been published, and they asked me to join the effort to create the Union Co-op Council of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. So uh, Mary Hoyer, who is a an awesome um, uh, organizer, has helped um, to uh, we sort of co-chair the Union Co-op Council since 2007 up until just recently, where we formed again now a, a, an executive committee to um, to carry that work forward. That's the Union Co-op Council of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, and uh, the website for that is unioncoops.org. And so that works nationally to, um, you know, achieve the, the mission of uh, building bridges between uh, the labor movement and um, the worker cooperative community. So there, you are just, it's, I, I so much enjoy talking to you because you have a wide breadth of knowledge in your few years here on this this planet. Um, and, and as you told us last time, you grew up in L.A. You got your bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in linguistic anthropology at UCLA, being middle-class white American family who um, you got racism in the home. And at age 15, when Martin Luther King died in 1968, he really wanted to help indigenous people or what I call marginalized people, and that's why you chose linguistics. And now that has taken you to worker cooperatives uh, after working a couple decades in the labor movement. Fascinating. So what have you all been doing in terms of forming co-ops? Well, so, um, you know, it, part of my job with, with AFNI was I was traveling all over the country. So um, to uh, wasn't working in one specific geographic area at that while I was still employed by um, by AFNI because it was a great deal of travel involved. I was being sent, um, you know, each week to a different state to work on a different organizing campaign, uh, some of the largest organizing campaigns in the country. Um, so the... Uh, when I finally came back to um, Los Angeles in 2015 and started not traveling quite as much because, you know, things had changed a little bit in my my job, um, we met, I convened a meeting um, and uh, we decided to form a group that specifically worked on this problem of um, the, um, uh, the relationship between the labor movement and the worker cooperative community, and we called it the Los Angeles Union Cooperative Initiative, uh, and we've been working in coalition with uh, the labor unions, the local labor unions in Los Angeles, local staff and elected leaders of labor unions in Los Angeles. Um, and the people involved with that, there's some really great activists, labor activists, um, a fellow named uh, Gary Holloway, who's the field director for the um, Steelworkers Local 675. Molly Talcott, who was the president of the California Faculty Association at Cal State LA. Anthony uh, Radcliffe, who's now the, the uh, president of the uh, California Faculty Association at Cal State LA. And um, let's see, um, Getz Wolf, who was uh, a, a staff member uh, researcher at the AFL-CIO in Los Angeles. Um, uh, Paul Ahrens, who was a business rep for IATSE, the uh, theatrical and um, uh, workers, uh, basically everything behind the the um, the um, the, um, the camera in Hollywood is IATSE. Doctor um, Ryder, Doctor, we have to take our first break. I'm sorry to cut you off. I would like for okay. you to come back, and we'll talk about this group and what what you all were able to accomplish when uh, Lucy got formed and, and, and worked with this group, how you got them organized and got formed. We'll be right back, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We talk about co-ops, and today we're talking with Dr. Ryder about worker co-ops. She has described to us that worker co-ops fulfill the mission of labor unions. And um, she had formed a, a group 
uh, to come together to see how the labor unions could combine with worker co-ops in Los Angeles. And she was describing right before we took the break about the different people that were in this group. And so my question to you, Dr. Wright, is what did this group do? Did it get formed? And what kinds of actions did this group take? I just want to do the last call out to, um, you know, one of our very active members, which is Carla Salazar. Of, um, she worked for the AFL-CIO and uh, is a uh, strategic campaigner. But, uh, yes, what we did immediately upon forming the group in 2015, um, um, the, the workers had been represented about 30 car washes. And the very first car wash that was organized is one called the Vermont Gauge Car Wash, and um, it's the very first uh, car wash that was ever union represented in the world, I think, um, at the very beginning of a campaign that the AFL-CIO and the steelworkers uh, both uh, funded, uh, which was called the Clean Car Wash Campaign. It's still active in Los Angeles, still uh, attempting to or union organize and uh, work these workers that are some of the worst paid and most mistreated workers in the, in the economy. Uh, well, this particular one, the, the Vermont Gauge Car Wash, had been uh, union represented for about six years. Is going through another cycle of, you know, bargaining for their contract. And the person who owned the business came in one day, cleaned out the till, locked up the padlocked the gates, and disappeared. Uh, they disappeared with their wages, which is wage theft. Did not pay the landlord. Did not pay their vendors. So this is grand theft. Uh, and just disappeared. So here, all of a sudden, their back, um, their back pay, several weeks worth of pay has disappeared on them. And the steel workers, you know, tried to help out um, this group of workers who was one of their bargaining units um, by holding some benefit car washes. Uh, but, you know, we just formed Los Angeles Union Cooperative Initiative. And so uh, we worked, we stepped in and, and uh, started to work on creating um, this, converting this car wash at the same location to a worker cooperative. So what we ended up with, you know, the steel workers helped to, uh, you know, came up with some uh, money to help them pay the first month's rent and a grant to help them with a few operating expenses. So they really, you know, backed them, uh, you know, substantially uh, and also dedicated some staff work to help them figure out how to do this. Uh, and um, so all of a sudden, instead of 15 guys out of a job, you know, being robbed by their employer yet again, um, they are now 15 new owners of uh, business in South Central. So that, uh, that the Vermont Gauge Car Wash, um, you know, went on for uh, a number of years, but um, eventually has gone out of business. Uh, it's an extremely competitive um, business, and they were not able to, you know, really uh, meet competitive rates. Um, and um, also there were a number of other business factors that contributed to them their own personal decision. But this is, again, this is them making decision what is, uh, rather than having the boss just rob them. So I don't consider this to be a, a failure. I consider it to be a great success because we came in and helped them in a situation where they were being exploited, uh, you know, and, um, and robbed, essentially. And, um, and, but then their own decision to uh, go out of business was made on their own terms. So I want to give a shout-out to Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhard, whose book is uh, Collective Carriage. And she said a lot of times uh, the businesses went out of businesses. It was not a failure for the same reason that you just talked about, because people, those 15, 16, 17 employees who became workers, they learned a lot that they could take with them. And I've had people on this show say that stuff that they learned in the co-op they could take to their life, like savings and budgeting, uh, negotiating, um, solving problems, solving conflict. Uh, so all of these skills they get in learning how to work together to form a business. And then they decided, okay, and that's what they decided to close it. Okay. All right, so that's a first one, which is awesome because I worked in a in high school and maybe the first year of college when I would visit my cousins in New York. I worked for a car wash, and that was terrible work. You didn't get paid much, and it seemed like the car wash owners had to be nasty. It seemed like that was a part of the job. <laughs> I don't know. They were mean people. 
Well, and you know, many of the workers are undocumented workers, so that they are vulnerable to being exploited in ways that you know, are just unimaginable to uh, the the you know a U.S. worker. Um, you know, because they can be threatened with being turned into uh, the authorities, and um, they can be not. There can be denied even the basic minimal uh, minimum wage standards, uh, sick days, all these things. And so, by union organizing, they had one at least that they were paid above the minimum wage. They were had some sick days. They had some say, some workplace democracy, some voice at the workplace. So do you have another example of what you are able to do? This is fascinating. Well, so since, the, since that time, what we've been doing is taking um, on the issue of, um, you know, the, the many people in the, in, the, uh, in the union movement do understand about uh, worker cooperatives. Many others, um, you know, like most of the general population, have no idea uh, what a worker cooperative is. And so we wanted to educate um, the uh, the most number of uh, of union staff and leaders and whatnot about the possibilities created by worker cooperatives. So for unions, you know that um, they many of the places that they represent uh, eventually the owner, you know, such as the baby boomers, will retire and there'll be a change of ownership. Well, then the union has to basically uh, reorganize themselves and to deal with a new owner. Um, very often that's used as sort of a union-busting strategy. So, um, but this this moment when there's a transition in ownership is also also can be an opportunity to convert that into a worker cooperative and um, and thereby reduce the amount of labor that the that the unions have to expend in order to fight the boss, you know, on every contract campaign, uh, and um, it can be an advantage uh, to unions. But if they don't have the tools available to them, then, of course, that becomes, uh, a you know, it's not uh, readily available to them, to that strategy. So we took up a program uh, to educate um, they have a series of workshops and webinars and educational programs directed specifically at um, the local unions, the union locals in Los Angeles. There are 350 unions in the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, the AFL-CIO Federation of Labor, uh, because, you know, Los Angeles County is enormous. Uh, and we did a presentation to the delegates meeting, which is the meeting where all of those unions come together every month. And we're now we're working on a series of workshops to um, equip unions with this extra, uh, you know, strategy to help um, you know workers achieve uh, democratic uh, workplace. How was that received? Uh, well, like I said, 350 unions heard our presentation and then signed. Not you know many of the staff and whatnot signed up for our workshops, and we're about to. Um, uh, launch uh, that program, um, and we're also launching that one. What we're trying to do is to launch it also nationally. Uh, so when we create these webinars for Los Angeles, uh, New York is also uh, interested in participating in this program. So we have the two largest AFL-CIO federations of labor, uh, county federations of labor, that, that are um, uh, that are interested in participating in a program of webinars and workshops and, you know, learning about uh, worker cooperatives as a strategy for the labor movement. Um, and we're starting to, um, you know, design those workshops and webinars and get them out there nationally. Because once we do them in Los Angeles and New York, we will record those webinars and then, you know, smaller uh, county feds around the country can use the, those recorded materials to do the same sort of educational program and outreach uh, to local labor unions, staff, and elected officials in their areas. Okay, so you're designing these webinars now. You're designing these lessons, this training right now. Yes, we are. We're uh, and we're getting speakers that have some experience in unions to speak about the various methodologies for um, uh, and strategies for setting up worker cooperatives. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. You're working on these webinars now. How can people find out about it? For somebody out there that wants to find out about these webinars, how can they go about, like me, how would I go about finding out about when and where these are going to be? Well, the um, like I said, the two organizations, we haven't done the schedule yet, 
um, because um, we're still, you know, working on lining up the, we've gotten con- confirmations on the number of speakers, at least uh, a dozen um, to uh, the basic skills, but we haven't set the dates yet. So uh, I would suggest uh, that um, nationally to go to the Union Co-op Council's uh, website, which is unioncoops.org. Uh, you can also find um, the Union Co-ops Council by going to the U.S. Federation's website, which is usworker.coop, and looking for the member councils. So there's two ways to find the U.S. Federation's uh, Union Co-op Council uh, and join the Union Co-op Council, um, especially people who have some union experience, have some union connections as members, leaders, or staff, or activists around unions. Um, please sign up to become members of the Union Co-op Council. And, uh, you know, as we roll out these um this uh, labor outreach program, then those things will become available on the website there. Uh, wait, wait, wait. I've got to stop you now and to go to our second. I've got to stop you to go to our second break, and we'll come back and talk more about the Union Council and how people can learn about that and on break. I'll look up unioncoops.org and usworkers.coop. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. So welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Ryder today, who uh, has her bachelor's, master's, and doctorate from UCLA uh, in linguistic anthropology, and early on, she wanted to help the indigenous people in her life at age 15, and... We were talking right before the break about Union Co-op Council, and so I went to Union Co-op, U-N-I-O-N-C-O-O-P-S dot org, and I came to Union uh, Co-ops, whose mission is building bridges between worker co-ops and organized labor, promoting the sovereignty of labor and subordination of capital. Uh, So I hear uh, our friend... uh, Dr. Liz, Michael Peck says that labor should, uh, let's see, they should own the labor and rent the capital and then not where capital owns the labor. Okay. Um, and then I also went to the, let's see, you, you suggested going to usworker.coop. And so I went there and that took me to U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops and their uh, worker co-ops in the news, and they have a lot of things going on here. Um, so those are two sources to find out, which I asked. I'll be looking for these webinars um, that you'll be given to union folks in Los Angeles and New York, the two largest, you said, organized labor AFL-CIOs, to teach folks about about how to form worker co-ops or how to transform uh, union shops if the baby boomers are going out, how to convert those to worker cooperatives and why it's so important. Okay, so Lucy is the organization that you talked about, Los Angeles Union Cooperative Initiative. Mm Yes, okay. that's a, the group of labor activist staff and, and uh, leaders that uh, is, you know, working on that specific that specific specific function and issue of building bridges with the labor movement. We also have formed a uh, nonprofit um, wing of our organization. Um, you know, so the umbrella of uh, the, these organizations is WorkerCooperatives.org, uh, but the nonprofit wing that we've created is Works Worker Ownership Resources and Cooperative Services. And we have a separate website for that as well, which is WorkUSA.org, W-O-R-C-S-U-S-A.org. Um, and in that organization, uh, we are actually tr- attempting to build a development group. So it's not enough to just talk about worker cooperatives. We actually need to start building them um, in, uh, from the ground up. And we are working in conjunction with Downtown Crenshaw, which is an effort by the African-American community in Los Angeles to uh, stop gentrification uh, by they created a um, land trust to start buying up some properties in South Central Los Angeles, which uh, developers who are attempting to 
um, uh, profiteer off of the Los Angeles real estate market are busily trying to buy up um, the property in that community because it's a little bit less expensive than in other parts of Los Angeles, you know, Beverly Hills and whatnot. So they're busily trying to buy up uh, a lot of land in that area. And in the midst of creating the land trust, they um, the what's called the, Den- the Crenshaw Mall came up for sale. Um, and so this organization has um, uh, has formed a um, an effort, a, a campaign to buy the Crenshaw Mall by the community members in uh, South Central Los Angeles as part of this land trust called the Liberty Land Trust. And we okay. have um, been, uh, been uh, working to create worker cooperatives within this um, development, this 40-acre um, site. So I want to I want to go back though before we 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 switch over to downtown Crenshaw and the Crenshaw Mall, um, but WRCS dot org you had talked about that and so I went to look at that web page uh, WRCS Worker Ownership Resources and Cooperative Services. Um, right. So long before there was a downtown Crenshaw or buying the Crenshaw Mall, you all have been working to create worker co-ops in Los Angeles, some by conversion uh, through through unionized. Is that do I have that summary right? Is that correct? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, that's essentially the idea. But uh, you know, there's also the many people want to start worker cooperatives and. Um, there's basically three ways to go about creating worker cooperatives, right? There's conversion, which she's talked about, and, uh, you know, a source for those conversions could be unions. But there are businesses that already exist, that are already up and running, that you can convert to worker cooperatives. There's incubation, where one person, one or two people have an idea, they're the entrepreneurs, and, um, you know, there are a lot of organizations that will, you know, give them trainings on how to start a worker cooperative. But essentially, those those entrepreneurs that are um, driving the force. But there's a third methodology, which is called development. Um, and development is where uh, an organization such as Works um, and others, and many other developers, uh, they decide what business they want to develop, uh, usually in conjunction with the community. And then they go through all the things that the those uh, entrepreneurs would have gone through, setting up the loans, the getting the business license, buying the equipment, all of these things, and finally hire in and train uh, workers to own that business and go through a process of transitioning the business to the ownership of the new um, tra- newly trained worker owners of whatever business they're developing. And what works is is we're attempting to establish a development group on that last model. Um, a group of people who will not only create one worker cooperative, but then also go on to create others. And uh, okay. in this case, part of downtown Crenshaw. So has Works decided what types of businesses, it would, co-ops, worker co-ops it would like to start? Well, there's a number of different, you know, um, uh, business plans on the table. But the one that we're starting with first, because we're not just going to be doing one, right? We're going to do one first, but then we're going right. to go on and do other other businesses. But the uh, we have um, settled on um, uh, on an Erismedi style with a cooperative bakery, and the reason that we have um, done that is because we've reached out to Erismedi, which is an organization in the Bay Area that has been operating for 30 years quite successfully. They're always very humble people. It's, it's so amazing to me because they have this tremendous uh, success rate. Um, they, um, because they, their motto is to under-promise and over-produce. Uh, and so they have, for 30 years, created these series of six or seven worker cooperative bakeries uh, and other types of cooperatives now. Uh, and they have a development group, which is at the kind of the center of the hub, and then they have these these bakeries that they support uh, going on through time, not just as they initially are created, but they are engaged in the support of these worker cooperatives throughout time. So we wanted to import that model to Los Angeles because that's a successful model. You know, failures do not help the movement. So we want to make sure, ensure the greatest opportunity for success. And it seemed to us that, you know, taking a very successful development group such as this and inviting them to help us with this project in Los Angeles, 
Uh, and in the process of that, you see the people in Los Angeles who want to become worker cooperative develop- developers will become trained on how to become a worker cooperative developer, as well as producing this, uh, a bakery for the downtown Crenshaw Mall um, is in, in the works. No pun so you're pun looking at, at creating developers that will develop right. these different worker co-ops and in the process – Creating a Ariz Mende that's A R I Z M E N D I bakery. And I looked up, there's the Ariz Mende bakery um, on Lakeshore Avenue in Oakland. Um, and as you said, they've been around for about 30 years. Right. And if you look at arizmende.coop, A R I Z M E N D I dot C O O P, uh, you'll find the Ariz Mende Association of Bakeries, of Cooperatives, I'm sorry. Um, which is the hub that I was talking about, where it provides business services to all of the bakeries, a support, uh, like they, you know, they help them, you know, say, do payroll and taxes and legal issues, uh, and most recently, of course, apply for the PPP grants, um, you know, uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, not every baker knows how to do QuickBooks or uh, how to do payroll or, you know, how to do their taxes or how to apply for PPP grants. But this this hub, this business hub, which they call the Development Support co- uh, Cooperative, is a worker cooperative of its own. Uh, and there's also a board where uh, a member from each of the bakeries are representative, represented. They call it a policy council um, in this hub of the Development Support Cooperative called the Arizmendi Association of Cooperatives. Okay. Developers and Worker cooperatives. You got. You want to create people that know how to develop worker cooperatives, and create uh, worker cooperatives. Which the example you are having is a bakery in Oakland, or bakeries in Oakland, and plus other types of cooperatives. And a worker cooperative for everybody out there is just a company that's owned and controlled by the employees. It's just that simple. And therefore, any business you can think of could be a worker cooperative. Any size, um, any location, any business, whether it's cutting grass, making bakery, or making cars or computers, if it's owned and controlled by the employees, then it's a worker cooperative. Well, in so, terms of the size issue, I would um, caution that you know the um, Mondragon, which is the largest worker cooperative uh, network in the world, uh, has a, about 250 worker cooperatives, about 80,000 uh, worker owners in the north of Spain. Over time, over their 50 or 60 years of development, they found that, you know, going with a very large size is probably breaks down communication. So they have, um, you know, published articles talking about the fact that if you get beyond 500 workers, then it becomes sort of difficult to have the type of communication needed to have true democracy in the workplace. So what they do is they break up the companies, you know, they, they Normal corporations, you know, are always consolidating, going toward monopoly, making everything. Uh, but the, what the worker cooperative community has recognized that we need to break them up instead. And so to keep the size manageable, uh, they try to um, stay within, you know, 100 or 500 uh, workers as a reasonable size for any one worker cooperative. But then, you know, you can break it up in the sense of if uh, you have a, uh, a manufacturing, uh, you know, making car parts, you could have separate off a one business that does, let's say, the the, the brake uh, brakes for the car, and make that a separate worker cooperative where the democracy can be, um, you know, valid and and um, still viable. So you just break it up into smaller bits to keep it in the smaller uh, size where democracy can reign. So who is Erez Mende? Uh, Erez Mende is the um, uh, the Catholic um, uh, priest that was uh, assigned to the Basque region uh, just after the um, the civil war in Spain uh, and the fascists that were you know uh, that were part of that. Um, they you know they, they the Basques were opposing the fascists in the in the Spanish civil war. So the fascist regime under Franco tried to bomb them into the Stone Age. Uh, and so the Basques, you know, basically were without, 
uh, the ability to produce even their own food uh, and were in desperate poverty when Erismendi was assigned uh, a parish in the Basque region and um, being a very uh, well-educated and um, and thoughtful priest, he set about creating a, um, a trade school. He was picking up young boys off the street that were homeless and putting them through a trade school and training them. They became engineers, and he helped them form uh, worker cooperatives to pull the, the Basque um, community up out of poverty uh, and set them on a path towards self-determination. So quite an amazing um, person. Fantastic, and that's why this bakery is named after this particular priest. And I understand that the Pope, uh, Francis, really likes um, the cooperative movement. His father taught him about it. I understand. I'd love to get him on the show one day. I keep saying that in case somebody out there hears it and knows him, and we can get him on the show. But we have to take our final break now, and we'll come back and talk about um, this Crenshaw Rising and the things that are going on there and how you all went from the development of the um, unions into worker cooperatives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, you know, before we get back to Dr. Liz Ryder um, and, and look at how conversions, incubation, development, and they've been particularly working on development through WORCS, W-R-C-S, and you can find them at WRCS.coop. I just want to give a shout-out to Chuck Snyder and the folks at NCB. They've been our sponsors, supporters, cheerleaders, giving us great ideas on who we can talk to and how we talk about this. Uh, because I grew up in the housing area, and there's all of these different areas of cooperation. And they've just been a phenomenal partner, um, providing all kinds of, of advice and finance, financial support. So... Dr. Wright, you all have been working on the development side. You've been working with the union organizers in L.A., New York. You're going to have some webinars coming out. I will be looking forward to those. Um, I went to union co-op.org. Uh, I went to usworker.coop, and I'll be looking at those. There's also, which I haven't talked about, it, uh, Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative. I've been to three of their annual meetings, and I know you all are working with and Lucy and CUCI. I, don't, I think CUCI is changing their name from Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative. Um, I, I wanted to, to, for you to talk, to now move over and talk a little bit about more about the Crenshaw, downtown Crenshaw and the Crenshaw Rising uh, and how you are working together uh, to create these worker co-ops inside of that mall and inside of uh, South Central. So what are some of the kinds of things that you all have coming up and doing there? To say is to ask uh, your your listeners to support the effort by the uh, African American community in South Central Los Angeles uh, for um, you know to purchase the mall and to you know uh, retain their community from against the profiteering of the real estate industry in Los Angeles in uh, to fight against gentrification and the way that they can help support uh, this effort is to go to downtowncrenshaw.com. Uh, and, you know, first of all, read all about it. Uh, but if you go to downtowncrenshaw.com forward slash petition, you can sign a petition um, that is uh, in support of their attempt to purchase this 40-acre parcel in Los Angeles. Uh, very ironically, it's 40 acres. You know, all they need is a, is, a, is, a, is a mule, right? 40 acres and a mule. So their motto is 40 acres and a mall. Um, and... Uh, and donate, you know, they say put five on it. Whatever you can donate, $5, you know, just shows you're serious, but if more if you can. Uh, there's also, if you go to that downtowncrenshaw.com forward slash petition, you can go to um, 
there's a way to go to uh, send the, the organizational support letters. So if you're involved in any organizations that can send support letters, this is how they're um, they're organizing to uh, put pressure to on the uh, various forces that be to allow them to purchase them all, which has not been easy. They and I'll go into that in a moment. And lastly, to circulate that same information, all those same steps, to all of your email lists and everybody you know, and ask them, you know, everybody you know, to um, sign on to this from around the country to support this. Now, what they've had to do. Wait, wait. Uh, let me let me let me just summarize that again because that's so important. What you've just said. Yes. Uh, so you can go to downtown Crenshaw. Is downtowncrenshaw.com. D O W N T O W N Crenshaw C R E N S H A W dot com, and it'll take you to their webpage, and you can see their vision, uh, which is the first thing that they talk about. The second uh, thing you can click on is sign the petition. Okay, so you can sign the petition. All the way over to the right, uh, it's a donate button. You click on that donate, and I have already done that. I've don't, I can't remember if it's 100 or $200 I donated for this, so I'm a part of it. I'm a member of it. And this is why I really want people to understand that here's a group of black residents in the city of Los Angeles that's trying to buy a parcel of land, and they're having a lot of difficulty buying it from the seller. Okay, And then now I want you to talk more, Dr. Ryder, about what are, what are some of the issues that they've had and where do they stand right now in buying this 40 acres in a mall. Well, so I want you to understand that this is a very professional um, effort. They have 250 community members on their town halls on Saturday afternoons. They've broken up into many uh, different uh, functional uh, committees to achieve legal goals and um, organizing goals and financial goals. They've raised uh, quite a bit of money uh, from uh, from people around the country uh, that are interested in reparations, uh, you know, 40 acres and a, and a mule, right? Uh, and um, they also put together a world-class team. So they have the architectural firm and development firm that created the African-American communi- uh, Museum for the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. This is not, uh, you know, a, a minor effort. This is a world-class effort. Uh, so they have designers and developers, they have a world-class uh, legal team, um, you know, uh, Clark Arrington, who's uh, in uh, Philadelphia, is helping them with their legal team, uh, and Ed Whitaker, who's in, I believe, in the Carolinas, um, is helping them on their board, you know, so they have, they've reached out to around the country to get them, a world-class team together uh, to do this, uh, to purchase the downtown Crenshaw and to make a bid, create the bid, but also to create the development plan, which is a hundred pages long like the development plan um and it's all quite professionally done uh and on top of this they have the highest bid uh they have the highest bid and they have a world-class team and yet they have not they've the the whoever is running the um this effort this uh the sale of the of the mall has ignored their bid and uh, uh given the uh attempted to sell the mall to other developers so the first it was the CIM group, and um, you know the community effort in Los Angeles has mounted a, a protest. They have uh, actions. They, they you know they go protest in front of the offices. They get the petitions together. They reached out to elected officials. They've really been organizing this quite you know uh, uh, sophisticated campaign, uh, and you know CIM uh, withdrew. And then the people that are trying to sell the malls, uh, Deutsche Bank being a part of that, and uh, another one called the Capri Fund, they they gave them all they the bid to yet another developer, Live Work it was called. Uh, now most of these developers are uh, associated in in the past with the Kushner Group, so we starting to build a realization that you know these are very conservative um, development organizations that are. Um, attempting to, um, you know, profiteer off of the, the land in South Central, uh, you know, because the Los Angeles is a very competitive um, real estate market. And uh, they will not even take the calls from downtown Crenshaw. They won't return phone calls. Uh, they, and they ignore the fact that they have the highest bid. Uh, and through, again, organizing, live work finally withdrew. So now for the third time around, this organization has given the bid to yet another developer and ignoring the downtown Crenshaw bid, which is the highest bid. Uh, now, what is com- really a puzzle to me is that part of the group that currently owns the mall, 
is is pension plans, pension plans that are owned by unions, uh, that are union pension plans. So such as the 10,000 workers that AFNI represents, uh, county workers, are part of the pension, one of the pension plans that is invested in the, this downtown Crenshaw Mall. It's called Lucera. It's a pension plan for the county workers. Uh, but there's also other pension plans that are, uh, you know, fire workers, uh, the firefighters and, you know, someplace like Detroit or I can't remember. They're, they're all over the country. Different pension plans are invested in this uh, this parcel of this 40 acre parcel in um, downtown in the Crenshaw district in Los Angeles, South Central. Um, and uh, yet in, in if they were to be fulfilling their fiduciary responsibility to the pensioners of these pension plans, they would take the highest bid. So now exactly, if the pension, pensioners want to sell it at the highest bid to make the best deal for their pension plan, and the downtown Crenshaw wants the, the mall and have given the highest bid, why that connection cannot be made? There's somebody in between which is blocking them from uh, purchasing the Crenshaw Mall. So it's, we're all tearing our hair out, and uh, of course, you know, the reaction is, well, just black money ain't green, you know? Well, I've got to no, I think it's worse than that and, and uh we've only have a couple minutes left here but black and brown people money owns the land through these pension plans you talked about and and what i'm hearing is redlining there's redlining on commercial land this is commercial land and what i have gotten by talking to damien and nikki and by the way for just telling everybody nikki is the daughter of dr Ryder and wonderful talking to her so i already knew i liked you before i even met you dr Ryder. <laughs> that 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 there's black and brown people that owns the money their money is being discriminated against black and brown people you had redlining of commercial land and we can't have that so please go to downtown com, sign up and help them i understand they have over approximately 30 million dollars in the bank so it's not like they're broke they've been given monies uh, to philanthropy, and they also have somebody that will loan the balance, and I think it's a $115 million bid or thereabouts, the largest amount of bid. They have the money. They have the documents. So why they won't sell it to them? Well, I think there are forces that don't want low-cost housing, uh, you know, affordable housing. They they want to create, you know, a luxury condos at $5,000 a month, you know, and, and, and profiteer off of the um, the – the land in Los Angeles. Well, we've got to go. And I just want to say, I think there are forces out there that want to keep the money in their pockets and they don't want black folks to have the money. That's what's the problem. That's why we need worker co-ops and things like that. And, um, they, if these black folks get this business, then they can't come and keep doing this out of other places throughout the world that other black folks can come in and own the land and, and develop this commercial space. We've got to run. Everybody out there, please have a wonderful week and live cooperatively. Thank you, Dr. Ryder, so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.